0: Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your host is Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor and founder of the Chalcedon Teacher Training Institute.
1: Hello again. Today I have a guest who is going to help us unpack the question, do national symbols belong in our churches? Gary DeMar is a senior fellow and president of the American Vision. He is the author of 35, I think, at last count titles, many of which sit on my bookshelves. He is somewhat expert in American history, last days, logical thinking, and he has been known in Reconstructionist circles for quite some time. And Today, as a result of reading something he posted on Facebook, I thought I'd bring him on and discuss this because we live in a time where things like the American flag are being desecrated, burned, maligned, and I think Christians sometimes are sensitive when somebody wants to bring up issues regarding the appropriateness of the American flag being in certain places, Certainly, we see it at the top of civil buildings, courts, and and things like the White House and things like the capitals of various states and, you know, the U.S., but we're going to talk about jurisdictions today, and Gary, thank you for joining me. Well, thanks for having me. So tell me what prompted your Facebook post.
0: <laughs> you know, I'm not real sure I remember what, pro- what prompted it. <laughs> Uh, I, I, just, I just see so much uh, about the flag and where it ought to be and churches and so forth. And I just, it just kind of hit me that we, uh, are, are, the difficulty is, is that Christians don't see the world the way God sees the world. This, this is, the, the whole world is God's world. And we, we are here uh, under you know, God's permission. And that includes civil government, uh, that the civil magistrate is here under God's permission. They Romans 13 says that the civil magistrate is a minister of God. Uh, and so there, ought, there really ought to be an acknowledgement by the civil sphere that they are under God's jurisdiction. And we don't have that anymore because we have this idea that uh, God and state are are, are, are separated. Uh, and you talked about jurisdictions in your introduction, and the, the Bible talks about there being a jurisdictional separation between church and state. They have certain roles to play within God's kingdom, within God's government. Um, and so my, my point in all this is when you bring the flag into the church, you're kind of given the impression that somehow the, 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 the state is a little bit over the church or even equal to the church. And, and I think the acknowledgement ought to be that the state needs to acknowledge that they are under God's government. And we, we don't have that anymore. Uh, we the Decl- uh, The uh, Constitution of the United States states that this was done in the year of our Lord, 1787. And it was, that was some kind of an acknowledgement that they were under God's government, but it was, it was not specifically stated. Uh, all 50 state uh, constitutions acknowledge uh, God in some way or another, but I don't think it goes far enough. I think we really, Christians, need to recognize that the state is obligated to, to uh, accede to God's government over even the civil magistrate. Uh, and I think if you put the the flag into the church and other types of symbols, uh, it's 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 not something that uh, re- I think you know should be done. I mean, it's not sinful. It's I just don't. I think it it sheds the wrong message in terms of what's really go- what really should be going on in our world.
1: Right now, we're all product of our times. I mean, I grew up back on the East Coast. I went to a private Catholic school, and every day we would say the Pledge of Allegiance, for example, in class. And it was something that was never questioned. Most classes had, or classrooms, had American flags. Um, We would sing, you know, America the Beautiful or, you know, the um, Star Spangled Banner. So these are things that we, and symbols that we grew up with. But I think what happens to a lot of people when they start understanding the proper roles that God has given the various institutions like family, church, and state, they don't rethink these things because they've always been there. So a lot of people would probably be horrified to think that, wait a minute, what do you mean we're Americans? Why doesn't the flag of the United States belong in our sanctuaries? However, I'm wondering if that subtle, symbolic message that's always been there Fueled a lot of people thinking that it was appropriate for city governments, county governments, state governments, or even the federal government to say things like churches couldn't meet for the last year.
0: Yeah, it is kind of an interesting uh, uh, w- way ca- things have kind of flipped, and how how churches, in many respects, have have you know pretty much coming un- come under the jurisdiction of of. The, the civil magistrate um, and, and it's amazing here in, in Georgia we have Andy Stanley who's proud of the fact that he shut down his, his church uh, and he has a number of satellite churches as well. Uh, our church I was in fact I was talking uh, to, talking to my wife who's very good friends with our, our, our pastor's wife and they get together periodically and I guess at the when the COVID thing hit and the, when the, when, the, when the session uh, met, uh, there was a discussion on what's, you know, what should we do here? And, and there was a little bit of disagreement, but it didn't take long before our church opened very, very early. And we just remarked on this past Sunday uh, how full our church was. I mean, it's probably the largest, uh, the the largest number of people I have I have seen in our church. And it's a it's a big sanctuary with with two balconies. Which gives us a you know uh, some space to to spread out, but I would say ninety five percent of the people in the church don't wear masks. Now there still are uh, church services online for some people uh, who feel more safe, and we have another sanctuary if people want to go into another sanctuary and spread out even more in order to do that. But very early on, our our elders took the position: no, we are going to open open the the church. And another thing was interesting: uh, we we moved from. Uh, one sanctuary into this brand new church. And I noticed that in the, the, the previous sanctuary that you had the, the, the American flag plus the so-called Christian flag. But when we went into the new sanctuary, they were conspicuously absent. So our pastor, you know, made a, the self-conscious effort to leave, leave those out. Uh, and I think in, in, in many cases, the churches are kind of embassies. They're, they're embassies of God's kingdom. And as a result of that, they have their own, their own jurisdiction. And if a, if, a, if a fight breaks out between this, the, this, the state and, and the church, the, this, the, the churches actually have a jurisdictional right to, you know, to call on that jurisdictional separation and say no uh, to, the, to the civil magistrate because the civil, civil government is not over the church. Uh, both uh, ecclesiastical and and uh, civil government are under God's government, and they all they both have their particular jurisdictional uh, rules and limits. And you can see that in the, the the church having the power of the keys, and you have the civil magistrate the power of the sword. And you don't want to give a whole lot of uh, uh, power and authority to an institution that has the power of the sword. They can they can kill you, take money from you, and send your children off to war.
1: Right. Uh, so
0: I think this is a new this is a new lesson that we as 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 Americans need, need to learn, especially as, as Christian Americans.
1: Now you brought up the Christian flag, and to be honest with you, I didn't even really know there was a Christian flag until um one time I brought a home group of homeschoolers that have are part of our homeschool choir, and we were going to perform at the request of one of the parents who also happened to teach at a Christian school. So we're at this assembly and I see, you know, the flag and they do the pledge of allegiance to the US flag and then I see somebody bringing out the Christian flag. Where does this Christian flag come from?
0: I, I don't know. I I've I've uh, I've seen a I've seen a pledge to the Christian flag like very much like the the pledge of allegiance, but I I I don't know the history of that. It'd be something really I I, I should have looked up before I I came on. You know, it's we you think about the Crusades, you know, they had, they had a you know cross and all that sort of thing. And I don't know if it's kind of part of that. Uh, but I just I just don't I don't think it's a I don't think it's a good idea. Now, one of the things about the Pledge of Allegiance that a lot of people don't know, is that the Pledge of Allegiance uh, really started off in the 19th century. And it was de- it was designed more for the the immigrant population. The goal was to unify these very different political entities coming over here and to have one, you know, one nation under God, uh, which is you know, something we, we, we use as well. Uh, and, and in one sense, that wasn't a bad idea. Uh, but, but over time, the Pledge of Allegiance has been used as more of a political force uh, because, you know, after World War II, the prevailing ideological enemy against the United States and m- much of the west was the Soviet Union which was officially atheistic and so under god was added to the the pledge of allegiance one nation under god was added to the pledge of allegiance in 1954 that has become contentious in our day because you got people who are critical of of that and as a result I've gone to the supreme court on numerous occasions to try to get under god out of the pledge the pledge of allegiance.
1: What's interesting about that is oftentimes Christians are fighting the wrong battles. You know, when people fight about whether or not there should be nativity scenes, I understand. They want a nativity scene out at Christmas, but they don't they don't have that same fervor, for example, about putting Christian children into state schools. So when people are fighting about the pledge of allegiance, they're Talking about whether or not the phrase under God should be in there. But I don't know, Christians are asking themselves, do I pledge allegiance to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, or do I pledge allegiance to the flag?
0: Yeah. And if you go back again, when the uh, Pledge of Allegiance, uh, Mennonites, uh, a group called the, the Jehovahites and Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, do not pledge allegiance to the flag. The Mennonites objected because of it, their pacifist beliefs and the uh, the sectarian group called the Jehovahites saw the pledge to be idolatry and uh, so there were there were some some and, and by the way the supreme court ruled in in favor of the jehovah's witnesses because jehovah's witness children were being forced in public schools to pledge allegiance to the flag and the jehovah's witnesses took it to court and i believe the jehovah's witnesses won but they were persecuted because they did not pledge allegiance to the flag and it's not that they were against you know, living in the United States, the same with the with the Mennonites, it's just that they saw it kind of as an object uh, where you were expressing uh, a certain type of devo- devotion that was almost religious in character. And I think for a lot of people, that's what the Pledge of Allegiance has become. And, I, and Andrea, I, I think your your point that people are focused on these types of, of you know the crash scenes and and types of things at, at um, Christmas time. And the broader question is, you know, people, you're upset about, you know, taking under God out of the Pledge of Allegiance. Well, you're you you've taken under God out of the schools your children are, are go to. You know, for six hours a day, ten months out of the year for 12 years, and your your problem is with taking under God out of the Pledge of Allegiance. Um, that's but that's where we are today. I mean, people want to know how you turn the country around. I always tell people the best way to turn the country around is get your kids out of government schools because that's where they're being propagandized to vote the way many of their many of them are voting. You got churches that are empty, you know, six days a week, with probably plenty of classroom in order to teach, and the, and the curriculum is all there. Uh, but you're right; we are fighting the wrong battles, the minutia battles, rather than the rather than the big the, the big battles. Uh, related to God's God's kingdom and how it ought to be governed in terms of of, of Christian uh, response to it,
1: and you have so many people who now, as adults, think of how big the baby boom generation is that were educated in um, public schools, and so in a lot of ways, they're not sure even what to think. For example. I remember distinctly learning that anytime the American flag is being raised, nothing can be higher. And so in a lot of the churches, the Christian flag is lower than the American flag because that's the rule. And these are the sorts of things that um, make it so that you have people who are, you know, They're not cold and they're not hot. They're lukewarm because they've been taught that, you know, in in the schools where Americans that, you know, World War II had the greatest generation, but very few of them even know the history of the Christian church. I doubt any, many, I'll say many young people have read Fox's Book of Martyrs. So the history becomes one more of the civil government is being important as opposed to the family of God and you being a member of the church.
0: No, I, I, think, I think you're right. It's, it's amazing if you ask people about, you know, separation between church and state, they would say, yeah, yeah, the you know, Constitution supports a separation between church and state. And then you say, well, can you tell me where in the Constitution it says that? And they say, well, no. And then I tell them, uh, did you know that the Constitution doesn't even use the word church or, or state? And the First Amendment is very clear. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So up, says nothing about a jurisdictional sep- separation between church and state jurisdictional or not. And I tell him, I said, the reason the, the Constitution doesn't mention the separation between church and state is that at the time that the Constitution was drafted, the the idea of a jurisdictional separation between church and state was already in place. People understood it, uh, and the, fir- and the fir- first amendment was was actually put into into the Constitution, which later became you know ten amendments. It was actually put in there because of con- because of the states. The states wanted to keep the national government out of their states in terms of religion because a lot of the state constitutions at that time had religious requirements. The state of North Carolina had a requirement. You couldn't couldn't serve in the, in, in the government unless you believed in the authority of both the Old and the New Testament. Uh, and that was something that was legitimate under the constitution of the United States because the prohibition of the first amendment was only towards Congress, our only supposedly our only law making body.
1: And when you think of the misunderstandings today that when somebody wants to do something and says, I have a First Amendment right to burn this flag, or I have a First Amendment right to you know, publish pornography, it's evidence of the fact how much they don't understand about the nature of government and how the enemies of the American Republic, based on Christian principles, have such an easy job undermining things.
0: Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is true. And I think part of part of the problem with 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 all of that is, is that the the, the civil government at the national level has grown in such proportions that, uh, you you know, you can't do anything anymore. And because this, the civil government at the at the national level has just come down and said, Here, here's the law on this. I mean, you think of some of these uh, this. Think of this latest COVID bill. I think it was six hundred and some pages, uh, and you know, someone says, some, "someone had made the comment that with all the regulations that we have out there today, we are each of us is probably breaking the law every single day because there's so many regulations, so many things that aren't even constitutional, and so we've turned so much over to the national government, uh, and anytime we want to fix for anything." We we go to the you know co- you know go to our congressmen you know fix this fix that go to the supreme court fix this fix that, and uh, we've we've just become a, a, a really a, a kind of beast like state where now where there's the fear of doing anything that uh, that you know that might that might provoke the the national government now we've got we've got presidents and it's not just Joe Biden. But it's we got presidents that just at the stroke of a pen, just by signing an executive order, all of a sudden this becomes law, and we kind of sit back and as Christians and say, well, we're supposed to we're supposed to you know go along with whatever the government says in Romans chapter 13. But we don't read we don't read Revelation chapter 13, where the civil government at that particular time has been described as a beast. Uh, so you know we're unfortunately Christians just don't. aren't really taught these types of things, and that's why back in the 1980s, I wrote a uh, series of books, three volume, uh, on God and government, uh, which was based on, the the first part of it was based upon, uh, you know, Rush Dooney's little book, Law and Liberty, where he made these distinctions between, you know, the self-government, family government, church government, and civil government, and even a uh, even a breakdown of the power and authority of the civil government at the at the state level, the city level, and at the county level. This was extremely important in the early founding of our nation. But we've lost that. We we have no conception of that today. And that's it's, it's unfortunate. And it's one of the reasons why we're in the position we're in today.
1: But you're not without hope. I know that. Your book, God and Government, is still in print. I remember you signing one for me back in 1988. You probably don't remember that we met then at a conference in San Jose. I remember I had greater influence with my son when I said he needed to read this book because remember, we just saw this man talk and then it was like, (laughs) oh, okay, I have to read his book now. (laughs) But you haven't just focused on American history, even though it is a thrust, it's the American vision that you're part of, but you've included logical thinking and having people understand eschatology as part of a way for Christians to regain their rightful place as citizens first of heaven and then of their particular country.
0: Yeah, and it actually grew out of the God and government because when I wrote God and government, uh, I would often be asked to come and speak and speak on the topic of God and government and this was remember this was in the 80s Ronald Reagan was was president at, at that time and people thought the good times had come uh, but you and I know you you know, the eternal vigilance you, you 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 can't you can't say you won the war just because you won a couple of battles. And we're seeing that played out as well. But oftentimes I would go out and speak and and, and inevitably there'd be somebody in the crowd who would, would stand up and say, wait a minute, Mr. DeMar, you know, this all sounds good and all that. But the Bible says we're living in the last days where Jesus is going to return in our, our generation. And, and that was a big deal back then too, because in 1970, Hal Lindsey came out with a book called Late Great Planet Earth and where he, he said that 1948 was prophetically significant and when, when Israel became a nation again, and then he went to Matthew chapter 24, verse 34, where it says, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And he said that generation there was 40 years. And so you add, it was simple to add, 40 to 1948, you got 1988. So here, here we were living in the early 1980s. And at the same time, I'm writing God and government. You had the late great planet Earth that sold around 27 million copies. Uh, out there where people were predicting that we were living in the last days and Lindsay called it the terminal generation so why are we wasting time trying to fix something that is going to you know turn to dust after the where church is raptured and the antichrist is going to rise up and you know there's going to be literally blood in the streets so the eschatology really you know came out of having to deal with with uh, you know, questions related to you know, you know, god you know, God and government.
1: You know, at that same conference, I don't know if you remember, but David Chilton was there, and he got up to give his talk, and he said, now, I have to tell you that I was asked by the organizers of this conference not to talk about eschatology, so I will not talk about how premillennial dispensationalism is wrong and how postmillennial is the way you should view the Bible, but since I promised I won't talk about that, you'll have to wait for another day to hear what I have to think.
0: (laughs) I don't, you know, you have a much better memory than I do, but that, I don't remember that.
1: Yeah, but, he was, uh, it was really funny.
0: I David has funny. Had such a, a quick wit and he can kind of get, a, get away with it because he, you know, he kind of looked like a big bear Yep. and, and he had this great, I was just remember David's great, great laugh. Yep. And he was one of the best communicators, one of the best writers uh, of, of, of our whole lot of writers. And Gary, you know, Gary North always said that uh, he never really had to edit anything that David Chilton wrote. Um, so, yeah, you're right. I mean, his his book, Paradise Restored, uh, we, we still we still sell it today. And it's a great entry into this into this topic. Uh, but again, I, I got involved in this in the 1980s because people were you know, predicting that Jesus was going to return before that generation passed away. Uh, Chuck Smith made made a very specific prediction in the early ni- 1980s. Uh, Hal Lindsey kind of fudged on it after a while. He said, well, I really didn't say that this was going to happen this way. But if you go back and look at his book, he was pretty much on the money that he would say 1988 was going to be the end point of this terminal generation.
1: Right. And it all stems from not understanding what last days mean, not realizing that the many of the warnings in the epistles had to do with the coming demise of Jerusalem, but there are still a lot of people who will espouse that Chuck Smith says it's right around the corner. Except he was saying that a long time ago.
0: Yeah, he he was. Uh, I've, I've written a couple of articles. Anybody's interested, they can go to AmericanVision.org and just look and put my name in, and then look for Chuck Smith, and you'll see very specifically, even more so than uh than Hal Lindsey very it was very specific on this the 1948 plus 40 1988 and then he also made uh this uh, prediction regarding um I think was I don't know was Halley's Comet did it did it come in 19 in in 1980s or was it the Hale-Bopp Comet and he made some remember yeah he made some predictions regarding a comet that was that was going to come and how this was fulfilled this would be full, a fulfillment of um, I think Revelation chapter 6. So this was this was all this was all going on and you know how long it's taken us to kind of get people to think in different categories not only about government and how government isn't synonymous with politics, but how to get people to start thinking in terms of eschatology in ter- and, and because what you believe about the future, is going to determine how you live and plan in the present for future generations, and, and every contrary worldview. I don't care what what contrary worldview it is, always has a future oriented eschatology. Uh, the, the Muslims have it. The Communists have had it, and uh, you you remember Francis Nigel Lee's uh, monstrosity of a book called Communist Eschatology, right? Every worldview has an eschatology and it's always future oriented. Liberalism has an eschatology. Unfortunately, Christians, yes, they have an eschatology, but we're always on the precipice of some end time event that doesn't get us to, to think, start thinking long term. And as a result of it, anytime something new comes up, we've got to re energize you know, Christians uh, and it, we're always on, def- on the defense rather than being on the offense so that we can replace what I believe is, is happening among us today is a, is a uh, disintegrating worldview. Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3 talks about that. They, it says, uh, they will not make further progress for their folly will be obvious to all. And so there's kind of a, a built-in self-destruct mechanism within unbelieving thought as unbelievers become more and more consistent with their operating assumptions well you can't sit back and wait for the collapse to take place because we end may end up under the rubble you've got to be in the in the position to uh, to replace what is in fact collapsing and we look public schools across the country today are are in a crisis situation we got we got people saying that for for, for math now if there was there was ever a a um, ever a subject That you is is outside the bounds of of politics. You would think it would be math. But now they're saying, well, showing your work in a in a math problem is white supremacy. And you really can't be so dogmatic as to say that two plus two is always four. This is kind of a this is a western idea. Well, what's what we're seeing today with this canceled culture that any anything in any book or you know pepe le pew now is is being <laughs> canceled uh because of, of of rape culture uh and of course the dr seuss ma- material and, and this will never stop but w- once you give in to the left on all this there's 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 no stopping it and over time th- th- this worldview as it becomes more and more consistent with us operating assumptions is going to disintegrate and fall apart we have to be building while this is taking place and that's why the Christian school movement I think is so important if more and more Christians took their children out of out of government schools it would it would hurt the public school movement as well as a taxing structure plus we would be building an alternative culture on the side while we see the collapse of of education take place in the United States and what do you think these companies who are they going to go to get the best workers they're going to go they're going to go to the Christian school movement. They may not like Christianity but they know and for the, for the most part these Christian kids are well trained and they're, they're ethical and I, I know of a particular Christian college in the United States today there's a company that a majority of their employees come from this Christian college uh, because they're easy to train they've been taught logic, they've been taught how to think and it's made a huge huge difference in this company. And just imagine what would take
1: place if if it were like this all across the United States. Well, I'll go one step further. What would it be like if Christian companies and Christian business people decided to give priority to Christians when they were hiring uh, homeschool graduates or Christian school graduates? I mean... Other cultures do this and somehow or other, Americans have been taught that if you give preferential treatment to those who think like you that somehow that's a bad thing as opposed to what the Bible requires.
0: Yeah, that's true and uh, unfortunately then you have the EEOC that comes in and you start showing that type of preference and then you end up getting getting sued because the EEOC says, says the EEOC says you can't do that. Of course unless unless you're a Democrat liberal, and your company is a leftist company you can put all kinds of re, uh, requirements and strictures on employees uh, but I know one particular uh, company uh, decided not to hire a, a person who was a Roman Catholic over against any anyone else and they were they were sued by the EEOC because it said you can't you can't do that you can't do that fortunately the company was a 501 C3 and there are there are within nonprofit companies uh, the, the, the right to make those types of distinctions. So, again, the national government has come in and said you, you have to hire this type of people. You cannot discriminate on, on anything regarding religion. Now we're seeing, of course, you can't discriminate on the basis of, of, of sex or their new moniker on gender. Uh, it's, it's, it's crazy, but we've, we've let this happen. We've, we've empowered the civil
1: magistrate in order to, uh, you know, to to have that kind of power over us. But there, we're not without hope because people are waking up. I think hearing public school teachers insisting they don't want to go back to school. Every time we hear somebody say, yes, we got to open the schools. My husband and I say, why do you want to open the schools? The churches should open up, say, bring your kids here. Forget about what grade they're in and we'll teach them like we had to do in terms of opening churches and people saying, no, we won't require masks. I think businesses are going to have to stand up and say, you know what? We own this business. And we're going to make the decision and maybe even do away with the idea of licensing, because that's not a function ordained by God for the civil government to decide who can be a salesman and who can be a hairstylist and who can own a business.
0: Yeah. And the four of my grandchildren go to uh, our, our church's school. Uh, They've been open for, you know, since almost from the beginning, They did some distance learning for a while, but, uh, they're all they're all back in school. It has been there have been no problems uh, with health health reasons at the school. So yeah, you're right. I mean, it's unfortunate though that we're we're disconnected as a community when we turn in terms of churches and schools and so forth, where you have you have certain special interest groups. Take the homosexual community. Anything that happens, they are Johnny on the spot in order to put pressure. On public officials over this, and we don't we don't have that. There are a couple, you know, there are a couple of organizations out there that can do that sort of thing. But for the most part, we're dis- we've we've self disenfranchised. We don't we don't get together. We're not we're not seen as a a viable political force. Uh, there there was this for a while with the moral majority, and then of course the um, uh, the, the tax the you know the taxpayers. Uh, what was it the the taxpayers, the, yeah, the taxpayers Party. Yeah, Taxpayers Party and all the things like that. But we've, we've never been able to join together and to create we, to create something that where politicians will actually listen. And also, I think the other aspect of this is giving pastors who generally aren't real strong some some idea that there are other people out there who are with them on this. And if, if something comes down the pike that they have to deal with organizations like Liberty Council and Alliance Defending Freedom will be there to pick up their cause. But if you had, you know, 20,000 churches uh, you know, behind something to say, we, we are going to say no to this. We are not going to go along with this. We are going to open up. And imagine if there were 20,000 churches out there that decided to do this, it would have changed everything. But the, some, so many of the churches were compliant with this. And it it took it took someone like John MacArthur, uh, to get up and stand up against this, who's typically not not known to be somebody who who's to, who takes you know takes a platform in dis, in discussion of a topic like this. Um, but uh, but there weren't that many churches that that followed him. And then there's this fellow in in Canada who's in jail now because he opened up his church. Uh, but again, if these churches in Canada had gotten behind him, it would have been very difficult. For the government in Canada to do this, because these churches, like like the civil rights movement in, in Alabama and the, the bus boycott, would have would have changed the economic situation uh, in that particular area.
1: So, like I said, there are people who are waking up. I think when you mentioned that God in government came out of um, what Dr. Russ Judy had said in Law and Liberty, is that with the absence of the an understanding of, I think he enumerated it as anywhere from 613 to 620 laws of the Bible, which some people thought was too much to learn. Well, take the 6 million laws that are on the books right now that, like you said, we're breaking one or two of them, or maybe more right now, just by breathing, that we've got to get back to the basics. And um, I think for anybody who is looking at well, what will I do? What will I teach my children? Um, Lawn Liberty, which Calcedon sells, and God and Government, which is now you have it all together in one volume, right, um, right. Is, a, is a great place to start. And maybe you have to start with yourself, parents, if it turned out your education didn't have the particulars that Gary's talking about right now.
0: Yeah, I, I don't know if um, maybe most of, Your audience has seen the movie, The Ten Commandments, Cecil B. DeMille's remake of The Ten Commandments, uh, starring Charlton Heston. A lot of people don't realize this, that before the movie started, Cecil B. DeMille came out on stage from behind the curtain and gave an opening statement. Uh, If if you've seen The Ten Commandments on television, you most likely have never seen this. Uh, if If you rent the video, you will see it. And let me read what he, some of what he said. He said, the theme of this picture is whether men ought to be ruled by God's laws or whether they are to be ruled by the whims of a dictator like Ramesses. Are men the property of the state or are they free souls under God? This same battle continues throughout the world today. And I I have uh, the uh, souvenir book that was made available in theaters that includes a preface with the title "The Law by Which Men Live," and this is what it says: "The Ten Commandments are not laws; they are the law." And as a as a uh, insertion here, the Institutes of Biblical Law is, is built on the superstructure of the Ten Commandments. But back to what back to what this uh, this souvenir book said: Man has made 32 million laws since they were handed down to Moses on Mount Sinai. More than three thousand years ago, but it has never improved on God's law, and th- this was from the 1950s. Right, and this wow. is the way many people thought in the 1950s, and if you went to a public school in the 1950s and even in the 1960s, there were remnants of this, but only remnants of it. And I and you know, so 62, 63, they take prayer and Bible reading out of public of the public schools. Uh, that really didn't do much. But the schools got more and more secularized over the years. And each generation, they became more and more godless. But this is the this was the thinking in the United States in the 50s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. A movie like this today would be considered controversial exactly. in order to make this claim about the Ten Commandments. Uh, it's, it's really uh, r- remarkable.
1: So let's find out. How did Gary DeMar get to be such a champion and advocate for God's law? How were you raised?
0: I was raised, my, my grandparents were are from Italy. My, uh, so I grew up in, as a Roman, Roman Catholic. I went to Catholic school through the fifth grade. I actually went to public school in the, the sixth, sixth grade. And I, had, I really put most of my efforts, unfortunately, into athletics uh, in uh, track and field and and so forth, and I did that through high school and college. <clears throat> I was on a track and field scholarship at Western Michigan University. And as I kind of kind of lost enthusiasm for that and um, the throwing the shot put in the discus, you really had to be really big. And not that I'm small; I'm like six feet and weighed you know between 215 and 220 in high school. But I would have had to got got I would have gotten much much stronger much bigger and the guys I was throwing with were they were 62 63 some of them 65 and I just I knew I wasn't going to be able to compete with them long term and so I was you know kind of drifting and I became a, a Christian my my uh, senior year in college at the end of 1972 I ran into a old high school friend and providentially heard heard the gospel from another high school friend and uh, I was just Converted in 1973, and uh, became a voracious reader. uh, Read everything I could get my hands on. Was very interested in in apologetics. I always wanted, I always liked to find out how things worked, and I wanted to know if this Christianity was true. Then how did it work in the real world? And there really wasn't a whole lot out there that told you that. One of the first books I read was *Mere Christianity*, which was was uh, was helpful. But it still didn't deal with specifics. And uh, I ended up going to seminary in 1974, which I would not recommend everybody to do this. I was a Christian for about a year and ended up going to Reformed Theological Seminary uh, where Greg Bonson was the professor. And uh, at, at RTS, we had always heard how the Bible applied to every area of life. The Bible applied to every area of life. And that's why David Chilton was there. And that's why James Jordan was there. That's why Ken Gentry was there. So we were all there at the same time. And then Greg Bonson was actually, you know, describing how the Bible applied to every area of life. And that's, I said, well, that's what I've been, you know, trying to find out. And so it wasn't just in the general conceptual way that the Bible applied to every area of life. I wanted to know how that applied in the specifics, in the particulars. And I found it with what Greg Bonson had outlined, of course, and then of course Rush's um, book, uh, Institutes of Biblical Law. And what was happening is, is that as this became, uh, you know, kind of fashionable to say, hey, let's see what the Bible says about this, and let's see what the Bible says about that. Uh, I just, I just kept applying those principles to areas of interest to me and that was America's Christian history. And of course the God and government and saying the government is not uh, synonymous with, uh, with, with politics. And it was transformational. And so each, each new thing I was learning required me to learn something else. And so with the apologetics and the governmental aspect of things and God's law and America's history and the eschatology this is kind of where I've concentrated because this is where I think my gifts are and my abilities are and what God has called me to do. And uh, I just have a lot of people to to thank for that because there's no way I could have done this on my own.
1: That's a great story. And I I'm hoping that there are lots of people like you who are doing their investigation. And of course there's a lot more accessibility now with the ability to do a Google search, providing you're not sense your your results are not being curated away from Christianity. When did you first meet Dr. Ashduni?
0: I I well he he came to um, he came to RTS in the in the 1970s, and that's where I met him. Uh, and then I also met Dr. North in the 1970s. And what's kind of funny about that? I don't know if you've seen this. This new thing that's come out, well, it's actually, it was an old thing is, but it was uh, uh, sponsored by Richard Mao and Ron Sider that they're disappointed with Joe Biden over the abortion issue because it was you know pro-life, pro-life Christians for Biden. They had come out for Oh, it.
1: right. I oh, did see that. You remember that.
0: Okay. Well, well, well uh, Richard Mao was at RTS at the same time Gary North was at RTS. and. I'm not, I'm not surprised at all that Richard Mao is where he is in all this, because he was like that back in the late 1970s, and so, of course, so was Ron Sider. So anyway, that's where I met Rush, and then there were a couple of conferences here, because I'm in the Atlanta, um, Atlanta Georgia area. Uh, my wife and I were members of Cal, uh, Chalcedon Presbyterian Church, where Joe Moorcraft is a pastor, and Rush had come in for a number of conferences. So I got to to um, uh, meet him a couple of times there. And then also at the co- the first meeting of the Coalition on Revival, uh, we met there and spent some time together as also went out to lunch a couple of times. and probably a couple of other times in between. So with Rush and you know Gary North, uh, and of course Greg Bonson uh, and David Chilton and you know Ken Gentry and Jim Jordan. Uh, there's, there's really been a mushrooming effect of all this. A lot of other ministries out there, uh, even with, with, you know, with the death of, of course, Rush and David Chilton and, and Greg Bonson, there are a lot of younger guys out there who have grabbed a hold of all of this and are beginning to take it to the next step. And with advances in, in media and, and so forth, we, we can take these, take all this to, 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 places that, uh, none of these guys could ever have imagined, you know, back in the nineties. The uh, I mean, as you know, look what we're doing right now. I mean, you and I are conferencing on a zoom call, you know, a couple thousand miles away. Uh, and it's, it's just remarkable what, what takes place. Now I can send books to people overseas where the, you know, sending trying to send a, a hard hardbound book of a, uh, you know, a printed book is way, way too expensive. I can just send them a PDF. Uh, it's 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 remarkable what's happening. And I think I think the left is anxious about all this. I think they're really they see this as a problem for them. And I think that's why they're trying to cancel as as many conservatives as possible because they because the conservatives we have the, we have means to the same type of technology. What we need to do is to is to develop ways of doing parallel um, technological. Ways of getting our message out without having to use you know, Facebook, uh, Instagram, or, um, uh, or 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 Twitter, and I think that's beginning to happen as well.
1: And one of the things that always makes me smile is the fact that the enemies of God never figure on the fact that if God has selected or parenthetically elected someone to be in His family, even the worst. Um, apparent enemy of God, like the apostle Paul, um, can be transformed. I can't tell you how many people, when I first began trying to understand what this reconstruction stuff was all about, would tell me their stories about how they were card-carrying communists, (laughs) and they were sure Christianity was nonsensical and inapplicable and, quite frankly, irrelevant until someone got a hold of them and some of them are some of the staunchest champions for the faith right now. So I think that the enemies of God, the true wicked ones who want to see an end to all this, um, have good reason to fear.
0: Yeah. and Again, I always tell people, you look around the world today, there are literally tens of millions of Christians. And at the, the time of the early church, right off the bat, one of the probably the, the, the staunchest of of believers in Stephen is stoned to death right off the bat and then you got uh, john's brother under under Herod, you know is is is, is martyred uh and he, of course the apostle paul is is he talks about the number of times uh, that he was beaten and left left for dead and the the world changed and you're right here the the, the, the first martyr is Person who you know did perform the first martyr stood by while Stephen was was executed. You know he becomes the staunchest uh, ally of of the, of the church and taking the taking the gospel to the to the. You know he was designed to go to Spain on on, on all this. And Christians kind of sit back and say, "Oh, woe is us! You know we can't change anything. Really? Yeah, we have tens of millions of Christians around the world to do this." Uh, we, we've, got, we've got enough money to do it if we really wanted to. We just don't, unfortunately, many people just don't have the will to do it or the belief that it can be done.
1: Well, I think COVID has been a blessing to get a lot of people to ask themselves, what do I believe? Why do I believe it? And God's turned up the heat enough so that people have ample reason to be uncomfortable. But what I think is remarkable about the story of Saul holding the coats of those who were stoning Stephen, you know what Stephen's job was? I know you know. He was helping widows. He was so dangerous yeah. that they had to kill him because he was helping widows.
0: Yeah, and there's, this is interesting you bring this up. Uh, we may have a mutual friend. You know Jerry Boyer?
1: Um no I but I know who he is.
0: Okay, you really need to interview him cuz you wrote a book called The Makers Versus The Takers. And it's a it's a it's looking at the New Testament and the the cultural what was going on culturally and politically and religiously at the time regarding economics. And it's it's a, it's a very insightful book and you begin to understand why they wanted to get rid of Jesus, and why they would want to get rid of someone like Stephen, who was essentially taking away uh, something that probably benefited somebody in the religious hierarchy. I mean, the rich young ruler, uh, why was this this guy so rich? Uh, He was a ruler, an archon, and as a result of his political position, He he saw Jesus as a possible threat. I mean, you, you put all this together, you get a better understanding of why the church of Jesus Christ is a threat. It's not because we are seeking political power. That's not what we're all about. I keep telling people that. I'm not involved in politics in order to exchange power with the civil, with what the power base is right now with the civil magistrate. I want to get in there in order to decrease the power of the state at the national level, at the state level, and at the city level, and at the county level, to give us more freedom, to give us more independence, so we can keep more of our money and to fund more of these projects
1: that people say we need the government in order to do. So going back to who do you want to educate your children, it shouldn't be those who hate the Lord. And those who have children who maybe are a little timid about being qualified to teach their own children. Most homeschool parents will tell you that you learn alongside your children, but because you've been around longer than your children, you can put things together and ideas and see how what the Bible says really is true because you've seen how things have been done opposite. So I would encourage people to be realistic about where we are but also to be optimistic about if we all do what we've been called to do with the great commission, then the victory is assured.
0: Oh, I, I agree. Uh, and it, it, as you know, the what's available today in terms of home educating is just un- unbelievable. Uh, there's so many options out there. The curriculums are all put together. Uh, the helps are there. There are actually uh, homeschool uh, homeschool uh, courses that are online. I mean, it's, it's really all there. Yep. And if you, and if you, if you, com, if you get in terms of a community of other homeschoolers, then you can, you can do specialized classes and y- y- your children aren't, you know, you know, locked up all day in, in homeschooling, you get together with these other groups and do, and do, uh, uh, you know, community projects and things with them. And you, you know, here, this person is, is better versed in math than I am in history and so forth. It becomes a community affair. So all the equipment is there. It just takes the will of the people to decide if they want to do it or not.
1: Exactly. Um, I had the opportunity to interview Dr. Vishal Mangalwadi, and his view is the church should be the faith center. The church should be the education center. It should be where we support each other, support businesses, and then we will have no need, if we do this, for the state to say, we require your taxes to in, in order to support education, because we can be saying, uh, sorry, we're not using that. Why should we have to pay for it?
0: Yeah, I, I finally met Vishal last week up in Franklin, Tennessee. He was up there talking about his new educational program. And I would right. recommend to your listeners that they get his book, The Book That Made Your World.
1: It's a an fascinating excellent book. book.
0: Yeah, and if they if you have high school students, it's a great great book to read because it's he's a great storyteller as well as imparting some very good information.
1: Yes, yes. Like he was my last interview actually, so it's very timely that you say it. And what I love is to see all the people that I respect and have looked to for guidance over the years coming together and putting their heads together because. Gary, my husband and I used to talk about you as the second tier of Christian reconstruction, not as an insult at all, but it was like when we first became acquainted with it, it's not that we couldn't understand Dr. Rush Dooney because his books are readable, but you could only take them in small doses because it was challenging a lot of the ideas that you had. And your books were written in such a way that you took a lot of the concepts and made them easier to understand. And so I recommend that people take some of the shorter works that Dr. Rush-Juny had, like Law and Liberty and Your God in Government, and these are great primers to get people started. The more they look at people's footnotes and bibliographies, they'll say, I have more to learn here. But then they'll be better equipped to be teachers.
0: Yeah, I I wrote a shortened version of God and Government called um, Restoring the Foundation of Civilization. It takes a lot of those concepts and puts it in a smaller book. Uh, So people can be intimidated by a large book like God and Government, although each chapter is pretty much independent. You don't have to. You start at the beginning a couple chapters, but you can you can go through the book and not have to read every single thing along the way. Same thing with Vishal's book, The Book That Made Your World. I don't consider it as an insult at all. I write for myself, and I tell people. I said, "Look, if I can do this, my undergraduate degree is in in, in physical education, <laughs> and uh, of course, I ended up going to seminary. And you had to go through the hard knocks of seminary, but you just read a lot. And we all have the potential to to do this to a certain degree. So uh, it's 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 all doable. If I can do it, you can do it.
1: You're right. And we've got to get back to being readers with the onslaught of video material and social media. I know a lot of people find it difficult to read because their attention spans have been sort of um, mutilated by this instant gratification thing. But how would people find your material in one place and ways in which to follow the things you're currently doing?
0: It's very simple. Go to AmericanVision.org, AmericanVision.org. And I'm on Facebook, uh, my personal account as well as American Vision has us on Facebook as well. So just go to AmericanVision.org and all of our books and audio and free papers and so forth, very much like, uh, like Calcedon, uh, we, we pretty much do the same thing. And we have a large uh, book inventory as well.
1: Well, Gary, I really appreciate you taking the time to be with me today. Thank you. And listeners, if you have any comments about this podcast or anything you'd like us to cover, please feel free to contact me at outofthequestionpodcast at gmail.com.
0: Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.